Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomerPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk you can find me on twitter i'm at homeward path mtg you can find me on facebook my name is adam spain like the country yes i got picked on about that for most of my life and you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders So, head over, check all that stuff out, while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. Hope everybody had a good week. It's been an interesting one here as well. So, we're going to dive into uh, what's going to end up being a little bit of an unusual episode this week. Uh, For starters, we are not doing Budget Spotlight, because the the major focus of this episode is on something to do with budget it's on my investing strategy when it comes to magic the gathering so with that in mind let's dive into brew of the week and this week's brew of the week is a deck that i have been playing around with on arena for probably two three weeks now and i think i'm in love (laughs) that's that's the best way i can describe it i think i'm in love the deck is Lorehold Magecraft, or you can call it Boros Prowess, you can call it Lorehold, Lorehold Prowess, you can call it Boros Blitz, Lorehold Blitz, Red White Blitz, whatever you want to call it. I have it listed as Lorehold Magecraft in standard. The core concept is you want to try to play like a modern or pioneer prowess deck. What does that mean? How is that possible? Let's go. Clever Lumamancer and Leon and Lightscribe create absurdly fast draws in conjunction with cantrips like Defiant Strike, Crash Through, and Guiding Voice. Yes, I count Guiding Voice as a cantrip because it still replaces itself with another card. Fun fact. Uh, So, why am I playing this deck? 
Well, for those of you who don't know, Clever Lumimancer is a one mana zero one that has Magecraft, so whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery, Lumimancer gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. It's the, the prowess equivalent of a Steplings or an Akum Hellhound for the standard initiates. It's It really, really, really wants to be a one mana four five with just a little bit of effort. But the thing about this one is, because it's not limited to a game action, you only get to take once per turn without help from spells. The whole thing about this is help from spells. It can get much bigger much earlier, which is obnoxious. And I'm going to explain why. Uh, Leon and Lightscribe is a grizzly bear. It's a one mana or two mana, two, two. Magecraft, whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, cast or copy an instant or sorcery, all of your creatures get plus one, plus one until end of turn. And that's where things get really interesting. Because on its own, Lumimancer would be interesting, but without just another good heavy hitter or something to give you some sort of like a different kind of angle, it probably wouldn't be good enough. But then you then you take those those creatures and you marry them to the fact that we have three cards in red and white, which are a supported color combination by Strixhaven and by uh, Kaldheim, if I'm not mistaken. Combine all those facets together. You get you get Needle Verge Pathway. You get the the check land. We have the snow duels. Like mana is not a huge issue. You've got access to the Jeskai Triome, the Mardu Triome. Like mana is not a big deal here. But then you marry the fact that these creatures get bigger every time you cast a, a instant or sorcery, and it doesn't really matter what that instant or sorcery does. But when we're talking about a deck like this, we want those instant or sorceries to do one of two things. They either need to always be live as long as you've got a creature, or they need to just always be live. And in the case of Defiant Strike and Guiding Voice, they're always live when you have a creature. Crash Through is just always live. You don't have to actually have anything on the board. Yeah, it doesn't actually do anything if you don't have anything on the board, but it it still works. Like, you can still cast it to look for things. And then when you're playing with a bunch of one-mana cards that replace themselves, that in turn allows you to try to chain those cards together which in turn creates those explosive obnoxious punch you in the face to death on turn four draws if your opponent's not interacting with you and that's one of the interesting facets about the standard format right now and part of the reason that i was drawn to this deck is in at the higher levels yes there's a lot of interactivity going on there's a lot of sultai ultimatum and mono red and uh the various flavors of control decks and you know, basically everything I said in the last episode I talked about standard was proven wrong by the uh, Pro Tour this weekend. But, on the lower end, people are mainly just kind of trying to do their own thing. And if they're only interested in doing their own thing, well, I'll do my own thing and kill them. So for customization options, beyond the core setup, which is your two pseudo-prowess creatures and your cantrips, there's actually a lot more room for customization in this deck than I thought there would be. Like, you think about the de the prowess deck in Modern, you think about the, the burn or prowess deck in Pioneer, and the thing that comes to mind is not open card slots that give you a lot of room to play with. It's not what comes to mind at all. And like I, I wrote it in the notes, I said beyond the core setup, there's actually a good amount of variation in lists, which really drives home how interesting this archetype is. Because frankly, this archetype wouldn't be worth playing if it wasn't interesting. 
if there weren't a lot of different ways to go about it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be this captivating for me. Some variations will go up the curve. You'll play the the cheap creatures and cantrips, and then from there you'll kind of transition into a, a lorehold mid-range deck with cards like Showdown of the Scalds, uh, Bone Crusher Giant, Goldspan Dragon trying to go over the top of your other aggro opponents after you've exhausted resources early in the game to punch them down low. And I have a, I have a healthy amount of respect for that, but I feel like that's not the best use of your resources here, personally. I've seen it, it looks interesting, it looks fun, and I will end up having to try it at some point. But it's not, it's, it's not my cup of tea. Other variations stay really low to the ground and look to sort of outpace the opponent by just casting a lot of spells. You can play Luris's Companion. The real mystery with the customization of this deck is figuring out what you want to do with your other two-drop creature and figuring out another one-drop. Because at its core, like, the, the Azorius version gets Symmetry Sage, the one that can make your creature base power and toughness 2-2 whenever you Magecraft. Uh, the, the Silver Quill or um, Rakdos versions get Eye Twitch. But you don't get that in Lorehold. So what do you get? Well, the one draw, the 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 other creatures you want to play in the deck are the part where you have to do a lot of sort of soul searching. And for me, I want to keep the creature lineup relatively lean because if we just like we're gonna mulligan a lot, we're gonna be in a position where we want to get specific draws, and playing worse creatures is not gonna help that. So I lean really heavily on Clever Lumamancer as a one-drop, and then beyond that, we want just two drops that help facilitate the game plan. And for me, there's two that come to mind. The first one is Clarion Spirit. We talked about it in an earlier episode. It's really, really, really good. You know, it's a two-drop that sometimes acts like a three-drop. You start chaining them together. You can go wide. You know, you go turn two, Clarion Spirit, turn three, Clarion Spirit, crash through, draw a card, make two tokens. Turn four, Leonin Light Scribe, Defiant Strike, attack with everybody, cast Make Your Mark, and get in for a ton. The other one that I look forward to trying out, I've not gotten around to trying it, it just kind of popped into my head recently is the card that makes the mono white deck tick and that is elite spellbinder in this deck it's particularly nice because if an opponent has a good removal spell you're going to lose but if you can make them wait to cast that removal spell you might not so you can curve out in a manner where you can play lumamancer on turn one spellbinder taking their stomp on turn two Light Scribe plus uh, Guiding Voice on turn three. Attack for a bunch. Clarion Spirit plus Cantrip, or, you know, Clarion Spirit plus Environmental Services on turn four. Pump the team, pump the Lumamancer, get in there again. Like, there's a lot of intrigue there in that, like, what you want to do, even if you're keeping the curve low to the ground. But Luris's Companion is a big boon to the archetype and just kind of a simple, linear, straightforward approach is something I have a healthy appreciation for. And even your non-cantrip lineup has a lot of intrigue to it. Because... What, what do you want to play? Do you want to play Pump Spells? Do you want to play Burn? Do you want to play some kind of a long game or grinding engine? What do you want to do? 
Right now, I'm playing a combination of Frostbite, Shock, and then some additional pump spells. Notably, Make Your Mark serving as kind of a removal insurance. Uh, Make Your Mark being a limited all-star. Not really, Lorehold's not considered a very good deck, but you can get a... It's not considered a good deck, but you can get a good deck in limited. Uh, Make Your Mark is probably a big part of it. But... That's one of the cards that I'm playing currently. Uh, I'm also playing Fight as One as an insurance against a sort of a more typical board sweeper or against damage or minus one, minus one base removal. And not for nothing, it's an instant and you can let them declare blocks and then blow them out with it. Tricks are for kids and I feel like a giant child. Ah. Uh, <laughs> For sideboarding, your lesson planned, see what I did there, has some tension between expensive token production or cheaper cantrips or similarly costed cantrips as the case may be. Uh, cards like environmental services that gets you a land, cost less mana, gain some life in a racing situation is reasonable, make sure you hit your land drops, keeps you from drawing one additional land, you know. Um, Experimental, I can't remember, maybe Experimental Anatomy, Autonomy, I can't remember the name of the card. The three mana lesson that puts two 1-1 one, one counters on your thing and it gets Vigilance, that's a good one to go get. But there's also, you know, the question of do you want to play Inkling or Spirit Summoning in your, in your lesson sideboard? Do you play Start from Scratching your sideboard? I do. Because sometimes you have to kill an Embercleave. Or sometimes you have to snipe down an opposing elite spellbinder to not get run over. There's nothing wrong with that. Just throwing that out there. Uh, hang on, I'm trying to reorient my notes here. Beyond those slots, you get access to powerhouse hosers like Droneth Magistrate and Containment Priest. If an opponent's trying to do something unfair to you, White is the color that gives you the thing to stop it. And right now, one of the two of the most popular things that people are doing in Standard are casting Emergent Ultimatum and casting Adventure Cards. And Droneth Magistrate shuts both of those things down. That's why I like that card. And not for nothing, if you're on the uh, Elite Spellbinder plan... Spellbinder plus Droneth Magistrate is kind of cute, isn't it? Just like, okay, that's an exile. You can only cast it from exile. It's going to cost you two more mana. And by the way, you can't cast things from exile. Now you got to kill this before you can cast that from exile. Like, it's just time walks on top of time walks while you're beating them down with prowess creatures. And I love it. So what's the outlook on this deck? Like, why, why, you know, how interested should we be in it? How much are we likely to see it? I said, right now it looks to join a wide swath of aggro options with varying strengths and weaknesses in a suddenly very diverse standard format. People are trying stuff right now. I know the top of the format still looks largely the same. Sultai Ultimatum's the deck to beat. You've got the various flavors of adventures with... Teamer Luca and Naya Adventures, you've got the various flavors of control. You've still got Mono White, Mono Red, Winota, serving up uh, serving up broken noses. But the fact that there's so many different ones puts this deck in an interesting spot because it's very straightforward. It is sort of almost like a Boggles deck in this format, and I know that sounds like that comes with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek to it. Depending on printings or reprintings in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms in the next fall set, this could represent a sort of level zero deck post-rotation, which is to say we're losing Torbrand, we're losing Embercleave, we're losing Fervent Champion, we're losing uh... Robber the Rich, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty sure we're losing Robber the Rich. 
Uh, we're losing Annex. We're losing just a lot of cards, right? The Model White deck loses quite a few cards. The Winota deck loses its payoff card. It loses Winota. So most of this deck stays intact as long as we get reprints of the cantrips or some replacement for them in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms or the Fall Set. It's also not for nothing when we're talking about an investment. It's not a deck I hate trying to explore a little bit in older formats like Pioneer or Modern. To the point that Sam Black actually talked about playing Clever Lumomancer in the deck like after I had thought about you know started kind of mentally putting the list together I'm not trying to take any sort of a credit for it but I'm just saying people who are a lot better at this game than me are recognizing that this is a thing so I might be on to something <laughs> so what are we talking about when we talk about my investment strategy because I've talked on at length about like cards I like to target and decks I like to target but like why what is the mindset what is the mentality I call it the tier 2 investment strategy so question 1 from all of you is what are you talking about I'm glad I'm pretending you asked that it started back when I played Yu-Gi-Oh and regularly had to take unexpected ban list updates into account when deciding what cards or decks to buy into. Like, for those of you who don't know, Yu-Gi-Oh! at this point right now is in a situation where they treat every month that goes by as a new format. Because they get a new ban list update just kind of out of the blue, usually about every three to four months, but they never know when it's going to happen, just that it's not going to happen before a certain date. So they treat kind of every month as its own cyclical thing, its own format churn. I've since adapted it to both Paper Magic and Arena and have relatively, I've been pretty pleased with the results. So what's the overall strategy we're talking about here? I, I know, it's like, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Tier 2 investments, what is that going to do for anybody? I thought the goal was to win. Rather than seeking the best deck overall, I generally look for the cheapest good deck. Now, bear in mind when I say that, I don't mean the best cheap deck. That's not what I'm looking for. I want to find a good deck, a deck that feels like it can compete, that happens to be cheap. Very important to make that distinction. So, you know, a good example being the comparison between, say, the Lorehold Magecraft deck or Mono Red Aggro and something like the Mono Black Auras deck that people pick up and play when they're tired of losing to Aggro on the ladder. Right? Like when you get really tired of getting your teeth kicked in by Mono Red and you pick up a deck that's got dead weights and hateful Eidolons and you are absolutely awful against any reactive deck you go up against or any creature that your auras don't kill. But your deck is cheap, your deck is not good. What I'm looking for is the best deck that allows me to compete at the lowest price. Something like this Magecraft deck is a really intriguing proposition because it's both potentially competitive because it feels very explosive and it's obnoxiously cheap. So it's like the best of both worlds for me, right? If I can't play the best deck, or this isn't to say I'd never play the best deck, sorry, skipped a line. Just that overall cost is my one of my primary motivating factors. Again, 
I have no issue whatsoever. If I've just got the cards, if I don't have to spend any extra cash, I'll play the best deck. I ain't going to be mad about it. It is not going to hurt me a bit to play good magic cards that happen to be cheap that put me in a position to win. I played Teamer Energy. I got no problem with it if it's there and it's effective. But if I can't play the best deck, I try to find either a good engine deck or something that proactively attacks what I would perceive as a weak point in the metagame. Case in point, the Lorehold Magecraft deck. Case in point, something like, uh, oh, what is it? What was one of the other ones I was playing? The, the Mardu Sacrifice deck. Like, are either of those decks tier one? No, not even close. Sultai Ultimatum is a much more powerful deck than these, but we can gain matchup advantages against different parts of the format. You know, the the Mardu Sacrifice deck seems to be pretty good against the other against the aggro decks and is a reasonable choice against the adventure decks for the ability to steal things from them, feed them to other things, and just kind of grind out value that way. <sighs> Excuse me. But, by contrast, the, um, the Lorehold deck just looks at everybody going, ah, you know, I just kind of want to do my own thing for a few turns. Like, okay, if you just want to do your own thing, we're going to test your devotion to that. You know, we're going to, we're going to hit you in the mouth real quick. Best laid plan. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So that's our game plan. Proactive, get after a weak point, the early game. This could take the form of trying to build around the typical interaction being played which I've done in other deck builds in the past where I like skew my creatures, my creature choices around what removal everybody's playing so that my creatures are a little sturdier or trying to kind of make my deck a little faster or slower to circumvent or to play with the fundamental turn of the format in mind. But it's also more frequently trying to marry a proactive engine to some sort of a, uh, powerful sideboard floodgate if that makes sense <laughs> a floodgate a good example being the aforementioned Dronith Magistrate or something like Kunaros if we did it in the uh, the Silver Quill deck um, just Leyline of the Void you know a way to shut off something that everybody's doing. Gravedigger's Cage in uh, Historic or Pioneer is another good example. Like, I'm almost to the point of wanting to main deck the, that card in those formats. If I can. It's so good. against. It's so good against what most people are doing. And then the most important question. Okay, but why though? Well, as a budget player, deck mobility's already a problem as somebody who's on a very tight budget dictating like what I can and can't pick up few things hurt more than having a card banned that kills your entire deck it doesn't just affect the banned cards but frequently, the cards that only saw play because of them are really good example. Look what happened to the Cavaliers after Fires of Invention got banned. The only one that saw any amount of play after was the green one because it saw play in the element, the elemental stack. And even that deck wasn't very good. It was just there. So if I'd used wild cards to build the Fires of Invention deck, if I'd used a bunch of mythic wild cards to build that deck... I would have lost my backside on it, right? That just, that would have been the end of it. Nothing I could have done there. Just, 
I get four wild cards back for Fires of Invention, but nothing else. That's not going to help me build a new deck. So thankfully, I never targeted the Fires deck as one I really wanted to get into. I thought about it on several occasions, but I, I ended up pulling myself back from it. And I'm glad I did. Because while I get wild cards back for uh, the rest of them... I don't get those wild cards back for, um, oh man, brains and a fog. I don't get those wild cards back for Cavalier of Flame, Cavalier of Gales, Luca, you know, all those cards that we're only seeing play because of the Fires of Invention engine. So, with that in mind, Learning new decks is rewarding, but exhausting. As somebody who does not have a lot of time to invest into magic, you know, work a full-time job that does not allow me to get anywhere near playing magic on the clock. The closest I used to get was uh, co-workers that we could sling some paper cards on breaks. That was it. Being in a position where, you know, with between work and my my responsibilities as a husband and father, I maybe at absolute maximum would be able to play an hour a day. I don't want to spend my time learning a deck and then have it banned out from under me. And then have to restart all over again. I want to eventually be able to achieve a point of a, a, a feeling of mastery of an archetype at some point. You feel like I have a decided advantage in a mirror match because of my experience with a deck. Or feel like I have an edge in a matchup that should be considered bad because of the fact that I've played it enough times. You know, one of those. So, my main magic goal is one of the biggest drivers in this, though. Because my main magic goal is not, I'm going to repeat this, it's not to get on the Pro Tour. I would love to do it in whatever form it takes after everything is settled. I would love to be able to do something like that. Or, you know, go and spike a Grand Prix and win a bunch of money. That'd be really nice. And I will be seeking to do that if, you know, it gets to a point where something like that feels like it can happen. But I'm not going to be one of those guys that travels around and goes to tournaments regularly because I just can't do it. There's more important things in my life going on right now. More likely, I'm going to be traveling around sort of my immediate roughly two-hour orbit and trying to play local tournaments. So at the end of the day, how much does it really matter if I have the overall best deck, because I'm not going to get to play a ton. And when you don't get to play a ton, you tend to lose to people who are better than you at Magic. Or tend to lose to people who are more consistently able to play Magic than you are. Both of these things are okay to admit to being something you deal with, that you grapple with. So my primary goal in Magic is not to win at the highest level. It's to be a, to let Magic function in a way that makes it financially solvent. Like, what I do in Magic needs to pay for my ability to continue playing Magic. That is goal number one year in, year out when I play Magic is whatever I do needs to keep me in a position where I can continue to play. And digital has helped with that a lot. Uh, going to more of an eternal focus locally has helped a lot. Becoming more interested in formats like Pauper has really helped a lot in that regard. But with the primary goal being sustainability... If I cannot generate the value a Carter deck currently has by playing it over the life cycle of its time in the format, 
I'm gonna move it. Like, if a card spikes up in price that I've been playing for a little while overnight, and I know I'm not gonna get to play for, I'm not gonna get to play that card, you know, even if I play every tournament that I can get to in the next six months and win all of them, I'm not going to get that value back. I'm going to move that card. Because, quite frankly, it's worth more to someone else than it is to me. Especially a card that's, you know, on the way out in rotation. Or a card that is suddenly seeing a massive surge in popularity because of an interaction that feels broken and will probably end up getting the card banned. We're going to get out of it before it happens. I, you know, I, I, I treat it kind of to make the sports analogy here, treat it like Bill Belichick treats his football players. It's better to move someone early than it is to move them late. And we're not going to talk about Tom Brady in that analogy. But the number of players he's been right on is much larger than the number of players he's been wrong on. And that's kind of the same way I feel I am about my cards. The number of cards I've made the right call on in dumping it when the price shot up is a lot higher than the number of cards that I got burned on by dumping them when they first spiked and then they had a second spike after I got rid of them. And most of those happened after I took my break from magic altogether so let's look at some examples during the four color copycat and uh after the banning of felidar guardian the aetherworks marvel format i kind of accidentally fell into teamer energy midrange and i loved it i loved that deck it was so much fun to play It was just a lot of fun to play. It was really good. You know, got under some people, went over the top of others. It was a lot of fun to play. So I looked up kind of what I was missing. I even borrowed some elements from the Marvel deck for my energy mid-range deck, and it allowed me to get a little bit ahead of the curve. To the point that I loaned the deck to my friend Jared he ended up winning our game day with it. Because if I'm going to loan somebody a deck, I'm going to loan them the one that gives them the best chance to win. I'll loan them the most powerful deck, and I'll play the one that I know the best. <laughs> a re another really good example was trading or selling out of the Scarab God, despite having access to the best places to play it, i.e., I had the, the blue-black framework with Torrential Gear Hulk and all of that surrounding it. I also had the Grixis framework with Glint Sleeve Slipener and World of Virtuoso. And at the time that I traded out of them, I also had Teamer Energy. But my mindset was like, I've got I've got the best deck in standard already. I've got mono red if something happens to Teamer. So, this card doesn't make those decks enough better to justify not getting $50 in store credit out of it right now. So, that's what we did. And, you know, ultimately I got a little bit burned by the banning of a tune with Aether and Rogue Refiner, but I still had Mono Red with all of its good cards. I was still able to play Mono Red for the rest of that entire year while I kind of resettled and used the credit from the Scarab God and our next entry here to figure out what I wanted to do long term. The next entry being pre-ordering Lyra Dawnbringer because I saw literal Baneslayer Angel at 
but $12 pre-order and said, there's no way it's going to stay that low. Let's go ahead and get them. And the day I re- received them, the day they came in, the white blue flash deck showed up everywhere. Everybody latched on and Lyra's price went through the roof sitting up hovering around that $50 mark and I said well I forgot to pre-order Teferi so I can't play blue white control that I wanted to play this in anyway yeah you're going back let's see if they'll take you back and they did so same thing I was not going to get enough value out of those cards to justify hanging on to them You know, the deck that I could have built that had them in it was not going to be one that was going to win a lot. And even if I won every single FNM I could have gone to play in over that span, I wouldn't have won back $200 worth of value. There's no way. During the Red Black Chain Whirler Abyss summer, I gradually started picking up pieces for this cute little mono blue deck. I was like, this deck seems really cool. And it costs nothing. Like it's it's really neat. It looks like it's just gonna frustrate people to death, and I love it. And then it got some more pieces, and then it got some more pieces, and then it turned out to be one of the best decks in standard from Ravnica Allegiance until War of the Spark was released. Model Blue Tempo. Got into that early while everybody else is fighting over Heart of Kirins and Goblin Chain Whirlers and every other thing in Model Red. I said, well, let's give me some uh, Curious Obsessions and Siren Storm Tamers. Let's get some pirates. I want some pirates. At one point, I was playing the deck with a Black Splash for Kitesell Freebooter to give me an additional way to disrupt the opponent and apply some pressure, and then, like, it was a good wearer of Curious Obsession, but, you know, in the long run, I got my money's worth out of it, for sure. Uh, Using winnings from playing Mono Blue Tempo, uh, both locally and uh, playing it in side events at Grand Prix Memphis 2018. I guess that would have been 2019, huh? Grand Prix Memphis 2019, sorry. Or no, that wouldn't have been Memphis 2019. That would have been Memphis... Yeah, that would have been 2018, right? I don't know. Years are running together after the last... After what's felt like the last five years in COVID. Um, But I used the winnings from that to get into Teamer Reclamation over the summer. And then I was able to play that all year long. I even loaned it out to Andrew for a PTQ. I don't know how he did with it. But it was a situation where I had the cards available. And someone needed them and were able to play Magic because I had those cards. It's not even just about me. I wasn't able to go, but he was, and he needed the cards. We got him the cards. We're going to make things happen. So, sort of, at its core, what are the advantages to doing this? And most notable advantage... I haven't spent actual cash money, either, you know, cash in hand or, you know, money withdrawn from the debit card, on Magic in almost five years. I've spent money, I've spent, you know, $5 to ship cards off here and there, or paid entry fees. That's it. So, I just, like, it's it's working. It's doing the job I want it to do, which is to keep me able to play Magic and talk about Magic and enjoy Magic in a way that keeps me engaged, keeps me satisfied, and 
keeps me, I'm not going to say happy, but content. As we all know, magic's not the best it's ever been right this minute. Disadvantages, I rarely feel as though I have a deck power level advantage. What do I mean when I say that? I mean, I rarely feel like I sit down, opponent tells me what deck they're playing, and I just go, oh yeah, I'm going to run that over. Now, most of the time I sit down and I'm like, all right, here, what are my outs? Uh, what cards are important here? Like, there is no massive confidence boost based on what my opponent's playing that I ever really get sitting down to play Magic in paper. And for the most part, the same thing can be said of Arena. Because I tend to invest my wild cards into engine decks. I tend to invest my wild cards into decks that I know we're not going to get banned. Because I don't want to waste the other wild cards on the deck. If, if it's a situation where I just kind of fall into one, sure, we'll do it. But, you know, if I'm, uh, all I'm missing is Uro from this deck, I, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and finish crafting Uro. But... In a situation where I'm trying to sort of figure out what the format's about, I'm not going to go out and craft the very best deck possible on Arena. It's money I don't have to open all those packs to get all those wild cards, and I'm not going to do it. With that in mind, I frequently will come up against an opponent who is playing said best deck and get frustrated because I can't reliably beat it. This is the world I put myself into. It happens. And as long as you don't wrestle with that too hard, you can work through it. It's not that bad. And it puts a lot of pressure on your overall play because you are not regularly going to have an advantage in deck strength. So it can make even an FNM a little bit mentally exhausting because you are constantly connecting dots, firing synapses, activating neurons, trying to figure out what you need to be doing, what you need to be playing around, what you need to be considering, what your opponent's doing. You're trying to Instead of trying to win your games with brute strength and power, you're winning your games with finesse. Yeah. It's like trying to take on a great sword with a rapier. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying it's it's it, it's not going to end well for you most of the time. Are there any final thoughts? Any final tips? Buying into standard concepts with potential eternal appeal is a great place to start. That's why I mentioned in the Brew of the Week segment I was so interested in that, uh, the Magecraft deck. is because, quite frankly, it looks like it has some eternal appeal to me. You know, it looks like one of those decks that could potentially pick up cards like Soulscar Mage or Soulscar Mage and or Monastery Swift Spear. Pick up a card like Dreadhorde Arcanist. And just be completely functional, be a very reliable strategy. So with that in mind, like if you're if you're looking to get into magic aggressively right now. Try to find a deck that looks like it can play now, but that you will be able to play for a long time. You know, get into a mostly Strixhaven or mostly called Heim deck. Get into a mostly Zendikar Rising deck. That's fine too. You know, whatever the case may be, get into something that gives you a chance to play it for a long time so you have the greatest chance to recover your investment on your cards. And then, obviously, if you primarily play eternal and limited formats, your investment goes a lot farther. <coughs> Excuse me. 
it goes without saying that, right? Like, if you're playing formats where your cards never rotate, you don't necessarily, you know, as long as you're not playing the, the obnoxious, broken, stupid, powerful thing, you can put yourself in a position where you can keep going. You can, you know, all the talk used to be in the MTGO circles, you wanted to try to go infinite. That's kind of what I'm trying to do here. And if you're primarily playing eternal and limited formats, it allows you to go positive at some point. You know, either you get really good pulls from your limited and you don't need them, or you just happen to spike a couple of limited tournaments and then are able to trade some of your cards in and get some additional credit and build and progress forward. The goal is always seeking to condense the collection, but grow it in value. You don't want the collection to get bigger. You want the collection to get smaller, but maintain more value. That's the mentality I have when it comes to what cards I want to pick up, how I trade, how I buy, that kind of thing. So with that in mind, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, I am still on the road, so there is not going to be a dad joke segment tonight. Uh, I was actually able this week to make the trip out to go see Brett and his family for their son's birthday. Uh, My family did not come along because it has been a very long week. Everyone was exhausted, and I did not want to put them through that uh, two-hour hike. So, I am recording this episode on the way home from that trip. And as such, I am still currently on the road. I am not going to try to pull up Twitter and read dad jokes right now. So, if you've got questions, you've got comments, you've got concerns, you can leave them down below in the comment section. Uh, If you like what you're seeing, like and subscribe as always. And you got further questions, comments, concerns, and you don't think I'm getting to them quick enough here, send them to me on Twitter, at HomewardPathMTG. Send them to me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. Uh, Join the conversation in our Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you want to have a more direct hand in the direction of the show, join our Patreon. Patreon.com slash HomewardPathMTG. This show's always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, head over there and kick it in. You gain access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord where you get, at $3 a month, your deck moves to the front of the line for Brew of the Week, and at $5 a month, we write you your specific episode that you want me to do. So, there you go. That's all we got for this week, everybody. Again, things are a little wild right now. Restrictions are being lifted. People are feeling an odd feeling after what feels like the last five years, and that's an odd sense of relief. So let everybody enjoy it. Go out, play magic, be kind, and we'll catch you next week. Take care, everybody.